right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Got a fantastic episode for you today. In-person interview with Lee Trevino. Uh, I think this has probably been up number one, number two on the wish list for ever since we started doing this. Uh, traveled to Dallas to this at, for this uh, here at Merido and had an absolute blast, as you might imagine, talking to him about his career. We left a lot of stuff on the table, but listen, he gave us two hours of his time, which we are forever indebted to. It was a fantastic time. Had to bust out the A-plus outfit. I'm in my Roback Q-Zip, my white one with the green trim. It's my favorite. Uh, we are deep into fall and quickly approaching the holiday season. Roback is ready. They're fresh off restocks of our favorite polos, hoodies, and Q-Zips. There isn't better gear for the remainder of fall golf or just fall outfits in general and winter outfits. It's fantastic. The fit, the feel, the quality, it is fantastic. They just released brand new performance crews. They are soft, stretchy, comfortable, breathable, lightweight fabric that is also just has the perfect stretch. Great for the course or a night out. I needed to, to flex some other things in there because I am wearing hoodies too often. Don't need to say anything more about the hoodies. They're legit. The best hoodies we've ever worn. The fabric is so soft. Um, and you can pair these bad boys up with the new Roback five pocket pant. It look, these look absolutely fantastic. Cannot wait to get our hands on these as well. Just keep making new clothes, Roback, because everything you've put out has been awesome. Uh, we greatly thank you for your sponsorship and uh, great, grateful for uh, all the tremendous, tremendous apparel that you make. It is the holiday season. Load up on Roback both for yourself and for others. Use code NLU at Roback.com for a generous 20% off your first order through the end of this week. That's R-H-O-B-A-C-K.com. 20% off bottoms, Q-zips, hoodies, vests, all that and more with code NLU. Get ready for the holiday season with Roback. Without any further delay, here is Lee Trevino. Everyone I talked to, when I told them I was coming to talk to you, said this would be the easiest interview I've ever done. I'm sure, I'm sure you've heard that one before, huh? Well, I'll tell you what. I'm a week away from 84. And when you talk about golf and, and you talk about what I've achieved, my memory's pretty good. Other than that, you know, I, I um, don't... If it's not important, I don't remember it. You understand that? That, that that's the way I work. I, I I've worked that way my whole life, and I think that's one of the reasons that I've been su successful, is because I'm loose. I'm loose as a goose. Gary Player's loose as a goose. He's 88 years old, and he still can hit the ball pretty good. So anyway, it's good to see you. Well, thank, thank you so much for your yes, time. But thank do you, you. I'm wondering. I mean, every every clip I've ever seen of you, every round of golf, every interaction you've ever had. I ran into you once. You would never remember this at the Greenbrier, maybe four years ago or so. You're on, right? Do you have to pump yourself up when you leave the, the house? Do you have to pump yourself up to go no. be ready to be Lee Trevino? No, I, I, no, I can't wait to talk to somebody. <laughs> I mean, that's the whole thing. I, I I like people. You know, I like to tell stories, and I, I like to. Uh, I'm a history buff. Uh, I learn a lot. Um, you know, from it. Yeah, you know, I have an old I have an old saying uh, that I tell people every day. I says that I have a difficult time sleeping at night because I can't wait to get up in the morning just to hear what I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know what's coming out of this mouth. My wife keeps telling me, she says, you know, they've got these cell phones now and everybody's got a recorder. Watch what you say. <laughs> and uh, I can't tell you what I say back to her, but anyway, I don't say much back to her, you know. But 
Yeah, I'm on. I'm 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 fired up. That's why when I leave the golf course, I don't go out at night. Uh, I don't feel like entertaining and talking to anybody afterwards. I've already talked for ten straight hours to different people, which is fine. And um, when I go home, I, I I go to bed early. I mean, I still to this day go to bed at eight thirty. Yeah. Which is wild. I just finished your book. They call me Supermax, which mm, is, we just, mm. Louis just learned is 40 years old now, your autobiography. Oh my, I think oh you my. need to write another one for the second yeah, half. Yeah, you know, I was talking to Jaime about it, and uh, we look like we we may work on something, you know, the second stage, you know. I was yeah. going to say, in the book, it doesn't, you did not go to bed early very often, in the early phase of your life. Well, I can't, <laughs> I'm not, I almost said something there. <laughs> no, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I struggle to picture this scene so much that you talk about in there about finishing rounds of golf at professional golf events at majors, uh, you know, going around in Southport during the 1971 Open Championship that it. you won. Those nights that you – give us an idea of what, what, what was that week like, just 1971, well, where you're hanging out and what you're doing. Yeah, well, I'm hanging out at the Prince Wales Hotel, which is right across the street from the Kingsway Casino. I'm not a wine drinker. I like beer. I haven't had a drink in 32 years now, 31 years. But I wasn't a wine drinker. And Jimmy Dean, the, the movie actor and the sausage guy, he came to watch me, def, you know, uh, defend my title or to play because I had just won the U.S. Open and I would won the Canadian Open and now I was playing Burkdale uh, for the third leg there. And Jimmy Dean was sleeping on a bench out there because he wanted to go out there. He's six foot six, big old guy. We see the casino across the street. Now, you have to understand that if you're leading or close to the lead in the Open Championship, you're not going to play. That tournament ended on Saturday uh, simply because at that time they didn't, they didn't play on Sundays in, in Scotland or in England, the, the, the Open. So we kind of buddied up. He was shooting a movie there, Diamonds Are Forever, with Sean Connery. And then he says to me, he says, let's go over to the casino. I said, okay. I'm not a gambler, but I went over there. And the tee times generally when you're close to the lead is usually around 3. We, we, we were teeing off at 3.45 on Saturday. Now, this was a Friday night. And so he and I go over there, and I, I got introduced to the owner of the Kingsway Casino, and I went and wrote a check for $1,000 to get some money to pounds to bet. I don't know what we were going to bet on. And he says to me, he says, you don't want to do that. And the owner's telling me that. <laughs> and I said, I don't want to do that. He said, no. He says, you can't win. And he was right because they took the tie there mm. in that casino. And that's a big, uh, that's a big odd there. Is it? Odd is shift, it, yeah. the, the odd thing. So I said, well, Ma, what are we going to do? And the, guy, and the owner says, listen, why don't you just get here, take a glass of wine and walk around with me and say hello to people. I said, okay. <laughs> so, so we sat there until 2 o'clock in the morning, almost 3 o'clock in the morning. I was drinking wine and uh, leading the open championship. Yeah, I was leading the open championship, and whew, I got up the next morning about eight thirty. I mean, about one thirty. I slept till one thirty, which was good. The worst thing in the world you can do in an open championship is when you tee off at three o'clock and then you wake up early in the morning. Now, what the heck do you do? Yeah. You know. So um, yeah, I went out there and Won the I birdied, birdied five of the first six holes. <laughs> Playing with Mr. Lou in that one. Playing with Mr. Lou. He was my best friend. I'll tell you, I know Mr. Lou from Taiwan. We played Tamsui Country Club uh, in a match one time. He beat me 
He beat me at 10 and 8. <laughs> he beat me 10 and 8. I was in the Marine Corps, and he was in the, um, in the uh, Air Force there in Taiwan. And we were playing an inter-service match. And uh, five Marines went over there to play them. And Mr. Lou beat me 10 and 8. I'll never forget it. And then he came over to Okinawa, and I beat him there at Owasi Meadows. And then we saw each other back and forth when we were playing internationally in Japan and stuff. And then, yeah, we went, uh, we, we tangled together. He was a hell of a player, uh, but the problem is he was a small man, didn't weigh much, played the small ball, which is a 1.62. That ball went a long way. That's what I was playing also. And when they converted over to the big ball in 1974, uh, Mr. Lou's career was over. He couldn't compete because he couldn't hit it far enough. Yeah. He got a bad break there on that 18th hole of that one. The lie he found. The lie he found. Ball above his feet. He's yes, almost standing in a bunker. Yeah, and, and it would have, yeah, because he could still eagle the hole, you understand, and me birdie it and we go into a playoff. Uh, he hit it and he couldn't, he couldn't stand outside the bunker. Uh, I mean, that was absolutely unbelievable what happened there because he, he's down, I mean, the, the, the ball's almost to his buckle. And he took a wood out, which you should do in that line, and he and he whiffed it. He actually, the club actually went over the ball, and the ball hit in the heel, and it almost hit him, and the ball went over his left shoulder and hit a lady right in the forehead. And I mean, I said, "Oh my!" And I hit six iron in there to the back of the green, and uh, two putted from there. He made about an eight footer for birdie. And I put my ball down. That you know, television almost missed that uh, that three footer because I putted so fast. <laughs> you know, I put the I put the. Why club, is that? Well, I just did that. You know, because I take the putter. I was taking the putter back before I, my eyes got back to the ball. See, I I would look at the hole, forward press, and as my head was moving back to the ball, the putter was gone. See, most people get the yips and and can't take the putter backs because they stare at the putter. Yeah, yeah, in other words, they're staying at those lines in the putter. I hate putters with lines. And and they stare at the putter. And then they can't get it back. So what I did was I, I taught myself to, to look at the hole. And as I'm looking at the hole, my head was connected to the putter head. And when my head came back to the ball, the putter was already gone. And that's why I was so quick with it. What is it? The 1974 PGA where you putted out? Maybe was it out of turn? You did. You wanted. To, you didn't want to sit and wait for the final putt to win by one, and you just went let, ahead let, and putted let, it. Let me tell you something. <laughs> I, I was choking so bad <laughs> that I had so much cotton in my mouth I could have knitted a sweater. I'm gonna tell you. I mean, I could have gotten that bunker and made you a beautiful sweater with all the cotton <laughs> I had in my mouth. And I was playing with Jack, but you know, Jack actually gave me a break there because. I three-putted 17. I had a two-shot lead. I'll never forget this as long as I lived. And I'm standing on the tee, and I've hit this driver all day with a fade and fading it. And then that 17th hole was a dogleg left. And the greens were terrible. They, they, they didn't hardly have any grass on the greens. You could see the footprints everywhere. Is it Tanglewood Park? Yeah, right? yeah. And it, 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 it had a bad summer with the grass, and then it had a lot of rain. And, I mean, it was – actually, the ball was sticking on the green, there was no bounce. When you hit a wedge in there, it would stick in the green, and you know. But uh, anyway, we get to eight, uh, we get to seventeen, and I tee my ball up and I hit a draw. But you don't hit draws. No, <laughs> and that's what happened. Nicholas looked at me and he says, "Where the hell did that come from?" I said, "What? What?" 
He said, you're drawing the ball? I said, oh, yeah, I can draw the ball. I just, I just don't like to. I said, I don't like a draw. And uh, he said, my, my, my. He hits a three-wood down there next to me. We both hit it on the green, and I had about a 35-footer. And I left it short and a little right, and I missed it. I missed about a three-and-a-half-footer there. And now we have a one-shot lead going to 18. And so we get up to 18, and I hit a driver, and I busted it right down the middle of the fairway. And Jack hit first because I had bogeyed 17. And Jack didn't hit driver. He hit three-wood. But you see, that was his plan. That was where his strength was. Jack would, would make a plan when he got to a major championship, and he wouldn't go off of it. And he says, this is a three-wood hole, and then we're going in from there. And he hit three-wood. And then he hits his second shot <clears throat> about 15, 20 feet right of the hole. Hubert Green was, uh, I think, a little bit left. And I hit mine a little long. I hit my six iron a little bit long, and I had about a 30-footer downhill. And I left it about two feet short. And I walked down there, and Nicholas started looking at his line, and I looked over at Jack, and I said, listen, I said, if you guys don't mind, you know, can I finish? Because it's customary if you're going to win a golf tournament, you mark your ball. You understand? But this wasn't a guarantee I was going to win this tournament, you know, because if Jack makes that, makes that birdie, now the heat is really on me. In other words, to make that two-footer, or now I lose the tournament. And so, so and, and Jack didn't say a word. He, he kind of closed his mouth and then with his eyes and he hit <laughs> and he just and he and he just nodded his head. Yes, yes, go ahead. And I made it, and I made the putt. And then Jack missed his, and uh, and I ended up winning. But uh, well, I believe at least in your book you say you told him out. He's like, I'm choking. You, you use that choking you, line, right? I, I, to them right there. Oh no, the I told him. I told him. I said, listen, if you don't let me putt this thing, I'm choking <laughs> so bad. I said, I'm gonna faint. I guarantee you, I'm gonna hit the ground. <laughs> I'm gonna hit the ground, and 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 he, and he just kind of closed his eyes with a little grin, and he shook, and he says, "Go ahead." <laughs> Mel, come on! I just three putted seventeen. Yeah, I yeah. mean, this would have been disastrous. You know, finished with a three putt, three putt. Come on, yeah, that's it. It it always seemed like Nicholas had a special affection for you. I mean, you got his number. You had his number. I mean, you beat when you guys were in the hunt together in majors. You beat him more than he beat you. That's for sure. But he he seemed to have utmost respect for you in your game. That's for sure. Yeah, you know the one thing the one thing that he respected, I think, with me is how much I I, I worked because he worked hard too. You know, people don't know how hard he worked. He's over there at Lost Tree in the back over there against those bushes. Nobody ever saw him practice. It is private thing out there. He had two putting greens at his house, and one was Bermuda and one was bent. So he knew when he was going which one to practice on. I think the respect that he had with me is where I came from and how I got there. Because he came up, in other words, in a, in a white-collar world. And, and he's, he's never flaunted it or anything else. But he came up, uh, you know, with a country, country club. club. Yeah, yeah, country club junior golf and the whole thing. And so, and I didn't start really playing until I was about 22 years old, really. But uh, I think that the thing that he, he told people a lot of times, he says, one of the reasons that I lost to him and, and, and couldn't, couldn't overtake him, he says, is because he, would get, he wouldn't give you anything back. And that's one of the things that Jack 
told me once, he said he'd look at a board at a U.S. Open and he'd shoot 70, 71. Somebody is always going to shoot 65. And he'd look at me and he says, they'll be back. They'll come back. Don't worry about it. He says, they'll come back. And that's the one thing that, that he said about me. He said, the thing about Trevino is he's not going to give you anything back. He says, if you, if you beat him and he's in the hunt, he says, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to birdie, he says, to, to, to overtake him. I hit the ball so straight. See, I, I, I didn't hit it far because I was a, a, a holder. And uh, Zach Johnson plays uh, the way that I play. And I hit a cut. Now, Jack hit a cut also, but he hit a release cut. Uh, he could release his club and still cut it. That's why he hit it so far. I mean, Jack could hit it 300 yards with that old equipment when we played. A little different skill test to do it. To, yeah, with that I wasn't. The, the, the advantage, there, were, there was an advantage. That, the, the big advantage that Jack had on me, he had two. One, he could hit it farther than me. And two, he could out-putt me. But I was better with a wedge. You understand what I'm yeah. saying? And, and if, you, if you really statistically look at it, the, 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 the rules, the way that the golf is played today, is there's probably four greens missed from the field. You'll miss four greens if you average it out, okay? Now, <clears throat> who gets it up and down most of the time, okay? The guy that can save par is going to win. It's just the way it is. When you miss a green, you got to get it up. you got to get it up and down because you're, if you make bogey, you're giving a par five away. And that's where you, if you look at par fours and par threes, they average out. You win with the par fives. That's where you win, eagles and birdies. You got to keep them though. In order to keep them, you have to have a hell of a short game. So you would light up when there'd be less par fives, right? Marion had two par fives. You love that. But yet Burkdale had five par fives, but you could reach those. I could reach them all but yep. one. And because of the small ball. Yeah. And I had played the Alcan golfer of the year there one time, one year. We played there. And I knew, see, that was the only golf course that I was familiar with in, in, in Britain when I went there to play. I wouldn't familiar with any of the other golf courses, and that was where I went. And I said, well, I know Burkdale. It's got five par fives. I can't wait to play. Because, I mean, if you get a short hitter and he hits a par five, I mean, that's Christmas for him. I mean, he's really, you know, he's really excited about that. But I could reach all, all of them but one. And Jack couldn't reach the other one either. Hmm. So Which hole was that then that was unreachable? 15. 15, okay. Uh -huh. I think it was 15. Yep. Yeah, because at 15, 17, and 18 were part five. Oh, that yeah, was yeah. long, that one. Yeah. Uh -huh. It's funny. I uh, uh, Preparing for these interviews, I got to do one with uh, Tony Jacklin about two years ago. Oh, and my so friend, my buddy. It's funny when I'm you know researching the 1972 Open, I'm cursing you because I'm, I'm getting ready to interview Tony. And I'm oh, this lucky Trevino guy chips in all <laughs> over the place. Because I was so excited to talk. Now I'm preparing for this one. I'm like, all right, go, Lee, go, go, go. And you're chipping in, holding it from everyone. That one. That one broke him. I mean, I don't. That was he did not recover from from you know, letting that one get away. You know what happened is that really, I, I got to explain this to you. We were playing Muirfield. We, we we were all in the hunt, and he and I were were five and six shots ahead of Jack. Jack was third, going for the third leg of the slam, and so Tony and I tee off. When we teed off on number nine, Nicholas had caught us. He caught us. And, and and Tony's looking at me, and I'm looking at him. And number nine at Muirfield is a very short par five with a wall on the left side. I mean, the wall is close to that green all the way down. They got a, a brick wall or a rock wall. He and I drove it down the fairway, 
both of us. We both hit five irons on the green, and we both made the putt. We eagled it to take the lead again. And we go around, and, and you know, you, you talk about me chipping in and everything. Jack lost that tournament. We didn't win it. We just happened to have been there because Jack bogeyed 16, which was a nothing par three. It was a seven iron, eight iron. And he didn't birdie 17, which he can hit an iron to. And that's where he lost it. You understand? But as far as the chip-ins are concerned, I chipped in five times that day. When I when, – what are <laughs> that's so many? <laughs> yeah. I chipped in five times for the week. But the, the, the thing, I was using an old wedge. I was using a wedge from 1937. What? Yeah. 40-year-old wedge? Yeah. It was a Helen Hicks. It was a lady's wedge. It was an R90 Helen Hicks. And it had dimples. It didn't have lines on it. And dimples are illegal, to tell you the truth, but they can't measure them. Because you're supposed to have a three-to-one ratio between the lines. Mm. Well, I took it to the, I took it to the RNA, and I said, "Check this." She says, "We know where we can check it." I said, "Well, okay. <laughs> so, so, but but the thing about it, it was when 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 I chipped in on 17. I tell people to look at the film of the BBC film. I went to the tee to tee off. I put my ball down and I took a waggle, and the cameraman and the t- tripod. Walked in front of the tee to get position. So I had to move back. And I stopped right in there. You know, I was interrupted from hitting the shot. So I walked and made a circle, put the tee back down, teed it up again, just like routine, got up to hit again. As I took a waggle, the guy with the tripod walked in front of me twice. Now, I got interrupted twice. So now, now you know, I'm short-fused, and my chili is a little hot. I'm, I'm, I'm you could put me in a taco I'm telling you and so so all of a sudden I pulled it I put it in the bunker I had to go backwards out of the bunker then I hit a two wood to the left in the opening because it's all guarded 17 in the front Tony and I are both in the same position I chipped first and I chipped it over the green and well I'm half bladed it's what I did and it went over the green because I'm, I'm still angry. I'm, I'm still steaming. Tony chips it and hits it. A, I don't know if he hit it fat or what, but he, he didn't hit it hard enough. Let's put it that way. And he leaves it about 25 feet short. He, but he lies three, putting for birdie. He lies three, yeah. and, and, and he's out. And he says, ah, oh, he said, don't worry about it. Go bring it up. He knows I'm mad, see. Yeah. And I'm hot. And Willie and I are walking across that green. He says, so I'm standing there. He says, go ahead and finish if you want. Don't worry about it. I said, oh, thanks. So I went over there and pulled out a 9-9 and dropped it on the ball and went in. <laughs> it shook him up so bad uh, that he missed the three-footer. He re-putted from the three. Yes, yeah. and then I ended up, I ended up with, uh, with, a, with, with a lead going to 18, and I hit an 8-iron to 18 about, you know, about 8 feet, 9 feet. Uh, they, said, they said that, I don't know if it's true or not, never asked Jack this, but a guy told me that he was in the locker room and Jack was – in the locker room, there was a TV in there, and he said that uh, one of the members says uh, Trevino's in the fairway. He said uh, he, he hit it past the bunkers because I was hitting that small ball. They had two bunkers on each side on 18, and uh, I took an eight iron out, and I was fixing to hit the ball, and, and, and Jack's looking up, and and the guy says, "You're not going to go out there to see what he does?" He said, "No." He says, "I can see right here," and he says, uh, "He said." Jack was looking at the screen and watching my swing. Now, I never asked him this. 
and he says he watched my swing, and he said before even the ball came down on the green, he reached down and started unlacing his shoes. All he needed to see was the swing. Uh -huh. Yeah. He said all I had to do, and that's what he, he said that he told the guy. He said, no, I don't need to go see him. He said, I watched that swing. He said, that's all I can tell. Because they could tell the way I, I, I came through it. You mentioned Jack preparing for major championships, and you, and you wrote about this as well to say he was he was the one that the first one to start charting golf courses to start understanding yes. yardages. So how did that work before he did that? I mean, did you were there sprinkler heads with yardages at all? No, did you you were totally eye testing to figure no. out how far away. How no. how did you know your distances back then? There were trees on the right side of the fairway. There was a hundred yard bush, a hundred fifty yard bush. And a 200-yard bush. Even in majors and, and every everywhere. Every golf course had it. I mean, if you go today to Wingfoot and a member will tell you, he says, you see that tree there? Yeah. He says, 147 from here. Hmm. Yeah. And that's how you did it. Uh, that's how they did it. They had no sprinkling system. The sprinkling system then was a riser. Remember, you put it in and you turn it on. No, they, they, they didn't have any plates in the middle of the fairway or nothing. They had bushes on the right side. And, and every golf course had them. You know, you just looked over there. Again, you could go way, way back to, to the, the unlikelihood that is your career. But tell us about your first U.S. Open you played in, 1967. Do I have that right? 66. 66 U.S. Opens, yeah. the first one you ever played You're in. Right. I qualified in, in Odessa. How would you get signed up for that, though? Well, it was 20 bucks, And I was, you know, playing pretty good. Guys talked me into it because I, I was beating everybody. I mean, everybody I played with, I, I, I beat. I mean, I played Tennyson Park. We played every day. I'd play with pros. I'd play with anybody. I mean, they'd even bring people in that I don't even know. One guy came in from New York, ran right over him. I mean, he was a hell of a swing, too, he had. And uh, he was a pro, PJ pro, and he was from New York, and he came down and, yeah, we'll play. I mean, Marty Stanovich, I played with him as a partner there one time when they played the big money games. And uh, he actually came and recruited me at the driving range. I'll never forget it. He looked over at the counter, and uh, they called him the fat man. And he's sitting there, and he had a lot of gab. I liked it, talking to him. And I knew he was a, a golfer. And he says to me, he says, uh, I hear you play a little bit. I said, I do. He said, you play at Tennyson Park? He said, yeah. He said, that's where all the big games are. I said, yeah. He said, yeah. He said, I'm playing out there next week. I said, you are? I said, yeah. He said, uh, you know the course well. I said, yeah, I said, I probably have a plus six there. He said, a plus six? I said, oh, yeah. I said, I very seldom ever shoot over 65, you know, 66 on the course. And he says, well, I need a partner. I said, I, I don't have that kind of money. He said, no, 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 you just need to play. I said, okay. So I was his partner, and uh, we did pretty good. <laughs> but I, but that was the thing, you know. I, I, I played – you know, a lot of different people, and, uh, and, and I beat them. So all of a sudden, they said to me, you got to qualify for the Open. I said, how do you do that? And he said, that's easy. They'll give you a thing, fill it out, send you $20 in. But didn't your wife sign you up for it, unbeknownst to you? Yeah, the okay. second, the, 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 the first one. The first yeah. one, my yeah. Wife, my wife says to me, she says, why don't you play? Why don't you try it? I said, are you kidding me? I said, that rough is high. I, I, I never played rough. We, don't, we, don't, we never played rough. We didn't know anything about it because public courses are all mowed down so you can play fast. So, yeah, signed me up. So I went, where do I end up going? San Francisco. Olympic. Oh, my God, that rough was a foot high. I mean, Arnie had a, what, a seven-shot lead or something going to the back nine, and he lost it. And then he did the same thing in the playoff, you know, with the Casper. So, yeah, I went up there. I finished 54th. 
Reese McBee, my buddy, shot 64 that first round. I played a lot of golf with him. And um, finished 54th, 56, I guess. T54, yeah, yeah, that's exactly But I right. never played again. I, 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 didn't, I didn't play anything else. I just kind of... Back to back to the driving range, Dallas. back to doing what I know what I have to do, and uh, picking up range balls and doing whatever. And then uh, I qualified again in '67, and right here in 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 Dallas at the Dallas Athletic Club, uh, I got the fourth spot, and we go to Boulder Straw. And so, a friend of mine, uh, which was the pro at Cedar Crest, Dennis Lavender, which was a, a disciple of Ben Hogan. They all played a lot of golf together back in the in the forties. He takes me in the back of his shop and he says, uh, "Carranza, I don't know why he called me Carranza. I figured it out the other day. Carranza, I gotta go back here and fix you a putter." He said, "That putter that you have is too heavy for the greens that you're gonna go play. You're not familiar with the East." I said, "Yes, sir." He said, "I want you to take this putter." So he fixed me a thirty-eight fifty-two Tommy Armour Reverse A blade. And I'd never putted with a blade. I was putting with a mallet head the whole time. And and I went up there, and I ended up winning the golf tournament, you know. And, and I stayed with a family there, the Kircher family. He had six kids, no air conditioning. It, it, was, it was the greatest experience I've ever had. I enjoyed that so much with those kids. We're still friends. And I remember Susan, which is a big lawyer now up there, she was two years old. We were outside looking for a four-leaf clover, and we found one. And I put it in my back pocket, and I will put it in that back pocket every day when we played. Yeah, I, but I qualified for it, and by winning that Open, sixty-seven at Baltus Roll, though this is the fifth-place finish, right? Oh, that's the fifth. Place yes, finish. that's right. Yes. So I finished fifth in the tournament, and I came back home. And went to work. Six thousand dollars. Didn't you go straight to Cleveland though? Right after to that? Cleveland. You made you're, a, you're exactly right. Six thousand dollar check, but the uh, money hadn't hit yet. I I, I, I couldn't cash it. <laughs> you didn't have you didn't have the entry fee money. <laughs> I was trying to cash it, so I, I win six thousand bucks, right? So, I, I, because of, of of that, I got an invitation to play in the Cleveland Open, which was at Aurora Country Club, and so I went down there, and. I really didn't want to play. I wanted to go home and party in, in El Paso because I had $6,000. I mean, come on. And so I'm coming up the ninth fairway. I'll never forget that. And you're looking at that book there. And I'm coming up the ninth fairway, and there's some signs behind the green. And the signs are on cardboard, and they're saying, go get them Supermax. And it gave me an idea, and I copyrighted the name and, and – uh, um, Superman. I've had it copyrighted since 1967. But anyway, by winning there, by finishing fifth there, sorry, by finishing fifth there, uh, I ended up getting some invitations to go uh, and play other tournaments. So I went to Minneapolis-St. Paul, and I qualified at Hazeltine to play one tournament there. But I was already exempt to go to the Canadian Open, New York, uh, Hartford invited me. Well, tell that story about Monday qualifying at, at Hazeltine. Well, I mean, <laughs> you have to understand that the PGA owned the tour at the time. And by the PGA owning the tour at the time, if you had a PGA card, which I had one, and you played in a tournament and you made the cut, you were automatically in the next tournament. 
if you wanted to play. So by getting an invitation to go to the Western Open in Chicago, I went a week early, and I said, let's go practice. And I took my wife, my daughter. Leslie was, I think, about four years old. And I said, let's go. Minneapolis-St. Paul will qualify. Nothing around Hazeltine. I mean, it was just just a pasture. It was a farm. And they built this golf course. So you parked right across the road. You, you parked right next to the clubhouse in the field. There was no concrete, no blacktop, no nothing. You just parked there. So Monday, call them the rabbits. So we went out there to qualify. So I teed off about 8 o'clock in the morning, and I shot 78. Now, you shoot 78, you're not going to make qualifying. Come on, that's, that's not going to happen. So I'm packing my car up. And Wade Cagle was one of the greatest guys that we had. He was a rules official. And he called me Pinto Bean. Now, today, you, you, I mean, people would frown on that. But we <laughs> do. I mean, come on. It didn't, make, it didn't mean anything. So he called me Pinto Bean. So I'm packing the car up to leave, shooting the 78. And he says, Pinto Bean, he says, where are you going? I said, man, I, I didn't, I, there's no way I can qualify. I said, I'm going. I'm going to Chicago. I'm in that tournament. He said, well, where'd you shoot? I shot 78. He said, hell, you're leading. <laughs> I said, what? He said, you might be leading. And, you know, Hazeltine was a brutal golf yeah. course. We'd never seen anything like that. Yeah. And Dave Hill, remember he said, Dave Hill, the late Dave Hill, he was my buddy. He said, man, they ruined a hell of a farm out here. He says, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I ended up, I ended up uh, making the cut there. I went to Chicago, made the cut. Make a long story short, I kept going. Every cut I made, I ended up playing 13 straight tournaments. Made the cut in every tournament. Hawaii was my last one. I was voted Rookie of the Year. I won $33,000 for the year. That's what I won, and which was a lot of money to me. Well, yeah. I mean, if, if we can take this moment to, to go back a bit and learn a little bit about your background and growing up and how you got into golf and, and where you grew up. And I, I got to admit, I, I think I was when I was starting reading the book, I was – I was mad in my house because our, our dishwasher started leaking, right? I got, I got a little upset about that, right? <laughs> and I pick up your book, and I read about your childhood and where you grew up, and I went over, and I think I kissed the dishwasher after that and was thankful I had a dishwasher, right? So paint the, paint the picture I, for us. I can, remember, I can remember sleeping and living under a tree at the age of three on a farm. And the reason for that is because mom and my granddad we're, picked, we're working on a farm in Raleigh, Texas, and it was too far to walk home. By the time you pick cotton till dark, by the time they had to, they're four miles away, they got no transportation. By the time they walk home, they got to turn around and walk back. So we were just staying under the tree, you know, doing that. I can remember that like yesterday, no question about it. And I went on from there. And then, and when I was six years old, about that, we moved to a small house, and it was a sharecropper's house, in the middle of a field, a pasture, in Dallas, North Dallas. It was north of, of, the, of the cemetery. My granddad got a job digging graves at this cemetery. Maybe one of the reasons that I'm as tough as I am is I used to go up there at night and water and, and, and water the plants and the, and the bushes until midnight. Now, when, you, when you're six years old and you, you're walking around those tombstones, 
uh, you know, and you can hear your footprints. You can hear your, your, your feet hitting the ground. You think somebody's behind you. You learn to get a little tougher, you understand. But there was a golf course next to that house. And so, and, and so we, we were watching these people hit back and forth. And they would hit the balls out of bounds and stuff. And then at night, we'd go up and, in the field and look for golf balls. We'd find them and sell them back to the members. But I, I never started playing until I got older. I, I dabbled with it a little bit. Started caddying at a young age. And uh, n- n- never got through school very far simply because we had to walk four miles back and forth because we were out there in the middle of a pasture. And so, you know, so what we did is when I was about 14 years old, that was it for me. Dropped out, started caddying. My uncle caddied there. I knew some guys that I caddied for every Saturday and Sunday. It actually got us through because I made more money doing that than anything else. What was the caddy caddy fee back then? 90 cents for 18 holes. Usually got a dollar and a quarter. But you could buy groceries for a week. I mean, it was crazy. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, a half a loaf of bread was 15 cents. Mm. I mean, I mean, I mean, you need to see it now. But anyway, so uh, that was it. And then I, I wasn't any different than anybody else. I caddied there. Then I got a job there. Uh, and I worked on the golf course. But we didn't play. But we were familiar with it. We could see people swinging. We'd get a club. We'd swing it. We'd do this, do that. Never played any golf. I mean, couldn't afford it. Couldn't afford to go and, and play golf. Couldn't afford the clubs. Couldn't afford anything else. But And, and then I ended up, uh, you know, when I was a little, little late 16, I started messing around with the guys, you know, and you get in trouble. And even though if you're not doing it, you they're doing it. You're, you're part of it. And finally, uh, you know, they, they, they got us. Where I got in trouble, to tell you the truth, when the first time is I was running with this kid. And I had a 049 Ford, blue 49 Ford. And we were drag racing with it. And didn't have any hubcaps on the car because you, you're not allowed hubcaps when you're drag racing. So we're working at this little golf course in Irving, Texas called Norwood. And he was caddying out there, and I'm working in the concession stand inside. 16 and a half, almost 17 years old. And all of a sudden, a guy parks next to me with his spoke. He's got some spoke hubcaps on his car, and they fit my 49 Ford Perfect. (laughs) You know where this is going. (laughs) And so, so... He takes them, he goes out there and pops them off that car and puts them on my car. And then we we head home. And by the time we get home, I guess the guy had finished playing and coming. We're gone. But he sees his things going, so he reports it. And the motorcycle policeman on Northwest Highway as we were coming home, you know, stopped us. And he says, uh, where did you get those hubcaps? I said, which hubcaps? He said, the ones you got on that car. And I'm sitting there. He said, listen, don't even say anything. He says, I know where you got them. He says, I got the man's address. And he says, I want you to take those hubcaps off, put them in the trunk of that car, and I want you to drive those hubcaps to that man's house. I want you to take those four hubcaps, 
ring his doorbell and give them to him. And I will be waiting for you down the street. And I did. And I'm crying and I'm nervous. I don't know what the hell to say. And um, gave him back the hubcaps. That was the last thing I ever took that didn't belong to me. I sort of got to you. And you didn't get fired from that? I, nobody ever knew about it. Okay. Hmm. But what happened was the police officer said to me, he says, how old are you? I said, I'm, seven, I'm 16. He said, when are you going to be 17? I said, December 1. He said, I need you to talk to somebody. I said, okay. So he took me down to the Marine Corps recruit trainer. And he took me down there, and, and, and the guy, I was, I was I was stout. I mean, I've been working my whole life. So he looked at me, and he said, yeah. So he sent me down, and it was about 15 of us. We took the little exam. Three day, Four days later, they put me on a plane to San Diego. Off to the Marines. Off to the Marine Corps, yeah. And um, You were a machine gun uh, specialist? Yeah, I was a 0331. I was a machine gunner, 30 caliber. Yeah, I spent four years in the Pacific, yeah. And how did that lead to golf? Well, I was dabbling with it and everything else. And then when I went in the Marine Corps, uh, you know, they, they had a, a range out there and I was hitting it. And then all of a sudden uh, they said to me, uh, I, I was fixing to go into recon and uh, reconnaissance is, is, you know, it's, it's like the Rangers and stuff. And I was going to go into recon and they messed my orders up. And like I said, I didn't play much. And they messed my orders up. I knew about golf. I knew how to play it, but I didn't. I never got a chance to play a lot. Not how good I was. So what happened was was they messed up my orders. And we were we were in Sukaran in, in Okinawa. We had just gone from Middlecom Fuji in Japan to Okinawa, and my orders were messed up. I was supposed to go to different training, and all of a sudden. The captain, I uh, called for office hours, and I go in to see the captain, and I said, you know, my, uh, they messed up my orders. I said, I'm not supposed to be here. I said, I'm supposed to be a recon. And he says, oh, man. He said, how in the hell did they do that? He says, I got to do all this paperwork. He says, let me ask you something. He said, you play a sport? <laughs> I said, I can play golf. He said, hold on. He's just staying right there. He picks up the phone, and he picks up, he calls a guy named his name was Ir Bill Irwin. I'll never forget his name. He was from California, and he was the amateur champion in California. He said, I got a kid up here. Says he plays golf. He says, do you need somebody on that team? And, and the guy says, yeah. He says, we need a guy on that team. He says, uh, he said, um, send him down here. So I go down there, and I talk to him. I told him how I came up and where I learned the whole thing. He says, good. So he takes me out to Owasi Meadows. Owasi Meadows was a um, little short course, sand greens. So you rake the sand and, you know, make it smooth, and then you can putt. And then the hole's bigger, too, simply because it caves in. So the hole's not four inches. It's probably six. And so I go out there, and we played two rounds a weekend, and I shot 78-67. He said, yeah, you'll be fine. So I started practicing. That, 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 I've realized that a long time ago. If you want to be really good at something, you, you got to practice. You can be the greatest player in the world with bad habits. Everybody's got bad habits. I had bad habits. I didn't have the greatest swing in the world, but I practiced as much as Mr. Hogan. That's how Mr. Hogan got there. But anyway, so I go out there, and I start practicing. And any place I can hit golf balls, I would hit. 
I'd go to the baseball field. I'd go to the pastures. I'd go everywhere. All self-taught. You just All self-taught. And then it took me about a month and a half. I became the number one player on that team. That's where I met Orville Moody. I met I met Orville Moody in uh, in Japan. Yeah, he was a he was the pro there at the at the base, and he ran the golf course. Now he could really play. We couldn't compete with him. I mean, not at all. I mean, he he was like playing a, a, a Tiger Woods. Yeah, yeah, we couldn't compete with him. We we went to Zama Camp Zama. That's where he was at. We played a tournament there, and he beat us by eighteen shots. That's how, that's how I finished second, eighteen <laughs> shots back. <laughs> A quick break here to check in with our friends at Rapsodo. If you want to make sure that you are not participating in our annual Christmas thread, which is the horrible golf gifts that you get from, you know, the family member that doesn't play golf, uh, I'm going to recommend that you put a mobile launch monitor, the MLM2 Pro, on your list. Uh, you can get ready for the holiday season by gifting your loved ones or yourself the perfect golf present. That is the all-new Rapsodo MLM2 Pro. Building off the success of the original MLM, the mobile launch monitor, which is now only $299.99, uh, Rapsodo's introduced the MLM2 Pro, a mobile launch monitor and golf simulator that is revolutionizing the game. Uh, this award-winning device offers three video replay options to analyze your swing, deliver 13 different key metrics, and boasts an impressive selection of over 30,000 simulated courses. Uh, one of the most remarkable features that you'll find is its portability. Whether you're practicing shots at home or aiming to enhance your game at the range, this device easily fits under your golf bag for effortless transportation. It's priced at $699.99. It's a steal. My golf spy recently dubbed it the best value launch monitor, and that is a crowded marketplace. So I would listen to them on that one. Visit rapsoto.com to take advantage of their exclusive deals and take your game to new heights. From now until December 10th, you can save $69.99 on the MLM2 Pro, plus a dozen RPT golf ball, uh, golf ball bundle or enjoy 20% off Rapsodo Sim Studios. Whether you've got space for a 13-wide enclosure or just enough room for a backyard net, Rapsodo has five studio options tailored to fit your needs. Plus, all five studio bundles are available for under $3,000 or under $5,000 uh, if you include a projector and the MLM2 Pro. So lastly, you can save on the original MLM by using promo code NLU to save on the MLM plus premium membership bundle, unlocking total savings of $99.99. Don't miss out on this opportunity to elevate your game with Rapsodo and to play without limits. When do things get elevated for you, though? I mean, you, after the Marine Corps, you go back to Dallas, I believe, and that, that's, this is when you meet Hardy at the driving range. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. And uh, I, I went to work at the, uh, at, at the driving range. And uh, no, no, I worked at the driving range before that. Before that, okay. Yeah, before that. And, uh, but, but the thing elevated for me is when I got out of the Marine Corps, after that is when Hardy got into it. But when I got out of the Marine Corps, I didn't go to work for Hardy Greenwood. No, I, I actually went to work for where you're sitting right now. I went to work at this club right here. It's a Jewish club. It was called the Columbian Club. They had nine holes around this huge lake, and they were building a new nine. I got out on the Marine Corps birthday of 61. What happens is they're building the new nine here, and they need somebody. So I got on, and I welded the irrigation here. I helped weld it. I wasn't the welder. But I, I helped weld the irrigation here on the new nine. That was my first job out of the Marine Corps. Didn't even play. And what happened was one Friday evening, after, after we finished welding all day, I would hit golf balls on the other nine, on the other golf course. Nobody was on it, and I'd play a few holes. We'd play for quarters and 50 cents and whatever. And I was beating these guys out of more money than I was making working. <laughs> 
So I, that drove me to practicing even more. So I was going up the hardies and hitting range balls. And he, I guess he kept looking at me, hitting these golf balls. So what happened was, was after I was on that Friday, I looked at the first fairway, and it hadn't been mowed. And it, it bothered me simply because our members didn't want to see that. So it was like 6, 6.30 at night. So I went to the maintenance barn, and I hooked up a tractor and the gang, and I mowed that fairway. And while I was mowing that fairway, this guy was walking across the fairway, number one fairway, and he comes over and he stops and he leans on the tire and he says, uh, how you doing? I said, I'm doing fine, sir. He said, listen, he said, um, is this what you're going to do the rest of your life? And I said, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm only 21. I said, come on. I, I'm 21 years old. I'm got a little beer, you know, making a few bucks. And he says, no, he says, uh, I, I've been watching you hit golf balls at my range. And I said, oh, you, you, you're on Hardy's range? He said, yeah. And he said, my name is Greenwood. I said, yes, sir. He said, I think you've got some potential. And I said, really? Uh-huh. I said, well, I said, uh, he said, I'll tell you what you do. He said, uh, I'm going to give you $100 a week, which I wasn't making there. He said, I'm going to give you $100 a week. He said, you come to work at 2. You close it in 10. I have a par 3 course. He says, you alternate. You run the driving range one night, the par 3 one night. And I said, $100. Yeah, I work six days a week. And I said, man, that's good. So when I went to tell them here, I was such a, a great employee when I went to tell them here, they wanted to double my salary. <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, I'm doing three people's work. You understand, they want to double my salary. So I quit, and I went there, and I started practice. And, I mean, I had it all. And I think one of the reasons that I learned to hit the ball so low is because we had a sign. We had a target 175 yards out, big metal target, and I was always trying to hit it with a driver, you know, low drivers in there, and that's how I learned to hold. And so in the par three course, I played it a dozen times a day. <laughs> with different clubs, and then I started beating so many people with just one club that I had to come up with a quart bottle, and a Dr. Pepper bottle, and I taped it, and I'd throw it in the air and hit it, and, and I could shoot 29 with it, with this bottle, and I'd take the, a half a stroke a hole. I never lost with it in all the years I played with it. I love that story. I never lost with this bottle. And so I practiced until 1965. Like when you say practice, you're talking how many golf balls a day? Over a thousand. If you if you if you put a combo on 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 the chipping, I had no bunker. Uh, Gary Player taught me how to play a bunker shot when I went on tour. I didn't know how to play a bunker shot. Tennyson Park East doesn't have a bunker, not on the golf course. It's in the floodplain, and we didn't have a bunker at the driving range, so I never got to hit out of sand. I was the worst. And as a matter of fact, I didn't have a sand wedge. I had a McGregor 11 iron. It was a wedge. <laughs> 11 iron. 11, it's called 11. You look at it. Back yeah. in 61, 62, they had 11 iron. And it was an, I loved it. A lot of gooseneck, black face. I mean, I could spin that thing. But I didn't have a sand wedge. So when I got out on the tour, I said, who's the best? He said, there's two out here. I said, Gary Player's one. Chi-Chi's the other. I went to Gary. He was gracious enough to teach me. Back in those days, those guys wouldn't teach other guys because you got to play, you see. I became one of the best bunker players out there because I, 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 I had to learn. So I practiced a lot, you know. 
Did you you loved it though. I mean, just hitting the golf balls. That was that was that became your thing. I, I just loved it. Yeah. I mean, in August and July was my best time because nobody was out there. It was 105, and man, I was pounding those things. It was unbelievable. I was doing it, you know, pounding them, pounding them. But I entered my first tournament. And my first tournament that I entered was in, in 65. And I went to Sharpstown in Houston. It was so funny. So funny. I'd never been down there before. Even though, you know, I mean, we don't, we don't go anywhere. Where are we going to go? That's why, that's why I went in the Marine Corps, so I could see what the other side of the street was like. You know? But, you know, you, you look at, you, you look at uh, Houston. So I got a 55 Chevy. Never forget it. Bel Air. Had air conditioner, but I wouldn't run it because the traffic was so bad in Houston that it would get heated. So we turned it off. And I got my caddy next to me that that um, but played out there, caddied out at Tennyson Park. So we go to Sharpstown to play. And I ended up winning it in a playoff over a friend of mine. And and so uh, uh, so we come back home. I'll never forget it. We get a thousand bucks. We Which, what, what was a thousand bucks like to you oh, at that Jesus. time? We couldn't cash the check, but we had twenty bucks. So we got some gas, and we got two RC colas, half a loaf of bread, and some bologna, and we ate bologna sandwiches and drink, and we drank RC colas all the way back to Dallas. Here's a black guy and a Mexican in the car, <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a '55 Chevy, baby. We were <laughs> headed back to Dallas with a thousand bucks. I don't, I don't know where the hell we were going. But <laughs> That's <laughs> just the way it was. I mean, it just it's just the way it was. And then I repeated it in '66. And then three years later, you went in the U.S. Open. That's because it was the path to to. I mean, it wasn't. You didn't necessarily think you were destined to play tour golf, right? I mean, the path to even getting your Class A PGA PGA card at that at that point was quite difficult. It took years and years and years just to get that kind of status, right? I think one of my advantages was that I knew zero about what went on with the tour. Today, these kids are seven years old. They know about the majors and Augusta and the U.S. Ova and this, that. And even when they're practicing, they, they start getting nervous and pressure. I didn't know one tournament from the other. I just knew that they were going to let me play. And I didn't care what the money was like. And I didn't know what the prize money was. I had no idea what first place was. And I didn't care. And I didn't care simply because from the humble beginning that I had, I I could live going back to it because I know how. You, know, you see all these homeless people that you see here? They, they never started out that way. That's why they don't know how to go, where to go or what to do. I, 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 I would survive. You know, I, I know what to do, how to get by. And uh, But when you look at golf tournaments, I mean, if I tell you, and, and you'd say, silly, because you'd say, well, he was a, a caveman uh, under a rock. If I tell you that when I was working at the driving range, I had no clue of who Arnold Palmer was, Jack Nicklaus, the Masters, the Tour, the Open Championship in Britain, I had no clue. I had nothing. I, I had nothing. I just knew how to get to Tennyson Park to play four guys, Dollar Nassau and Skins, and, and I was happy. 
Yeah, I was happy. We could tell. I'll never forget. I used to play with a guy named Howard Buchanan. And we'd go and play different golf courses, and we'd gamble all gamble. Not much, 50 cents, a dollar side and stuff. You'd win 20 bucks or something. And, and then as soon as we finish, you know, because it's a public close, as soon as you finish, you know, the beer's too high there, so we'd drive to the first 7-Eleven. We'd get a six-pack of beer. And we were so good at He was so good at it. As he reached in, in, in the cooler to get a six-pack of beer, and he says, I said, what's the matter? He said, wait a minute. He said, this thing is too light. He said, there's got to be a can missing. And he, he opens it up and looks in it. No, instead of 12 ounces, there were 10. <laughs> <laughs> there were 10-ounce cans. But he knew. He could just Oh, he could it. tell by the weight. He said, ah, oh, there's a can missing out of this six-pack. <laughs> but that's how we lived our life. Well, that's what you set the scene, too, when you, you wrote about going out to the 67 U.S. Open. You had six shirts three pairs of pants, one pair of shoes. Remember how many golf clubs you had? Yeah, I had 13. 12 is what you wrote. 12, 12 yeah. clubs because you did not have the wedges, I don't think. Oh, no, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't, couldn't use the wedges. <laughs> I had an 11 iron. It's the first time you've been east of the Mississippi. You didn't have a suit coat, so you weren't allowed to eat at the club? I, had to, I had to eat in a Chinese restaurant yeah. every night. I walked down Highway 22. Do you know how many people get killed on Highway 22 in New Jersey every day? I mean, this is dangerous. There's no sidewalk. There's no nothing. I'm walking down the side of the road. to the. They wouldn't let me in. And then I came back 25 years later to play in the tournament, stayed in the Union Motel was the name of it. And I stayed in the same hotel, and the owner gave me a suede coat. And I looked at him, and I said, you could keep that. I said, I needed it back then. I bought my own now. I said, I, I own a lot of them right now. I don't <laughs> wear them, but I got a closet full of them. But, no, I did take it. And he gave me this suede sport coat. But no, you couldn't eat in the restaurant without a jacket. I didn't know that. Mm. I, I had no clue. Yeah. It's a whole different whole different scene for I'll us. give you one better than that. First time I went to New York, I went there for the 1971, I think it was, when I won Athlete of the Year. And I won the Hickok Award. And I'm staying in this high-rise hotel. And everybody's, I mean, i I never seen rush like this. People running everywhere. And when we got down, they had a counter with little seat, swivelly seats to eat breakfast. And I sat down and I ordered a bunch of stuff, you know, I ordered eggs and bacon and everything. And this is how I found out how slick they were. You know where this is going. So all of a sudden, I, I sat down, I'm fixing to eat, they bring my breakfast, and I guess this guy's watching me. And as soon as they brought my breakfast and put it in front, he says to me, he says, uh, sir, sir, he says, uh, there's a phone call for you at the front desk. And it's pretty good ways over to the front desk. I said, oh, thank you very much. So I get up and I walk over there. And when I got back, he had eaten my breakfast. <laughs> that's good. I did not see that that's what you call. That's what you call surviving. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to tell you, this guy probably can't eat a steak. Takes too long to eat a steak. But scrambled eggs and some toast. God. Yeah, he ate my breakfast while I went over there to see. It wasn't no phone call, <laughs> but like a damn fool, there I go. <laughs> well, I mean, what was it like when you got when you started making money? I mean, you you, you grew up in very poor background, and you start making money on the PGA Tour. What was that like? What was that change like? I, I love the story you tell about what you did with the with the your grandfather's beer bill at the bar every time. Yeah. you know, my, my granddad went up and down Greenville Avenue. They're on Park Lane, Greenville Avenue, and uh, there were about five bars that he'd go to. He liked to dance. He was 78 years old, 
He was the toughest old bastard you've ever seen. And so, and he would, he, he didn't have any money. So I went to all the bars and uh, they all knew me, you know, the owners. And I'd say, listen, just, I don't want him buying rounds. I said, but as far as him drinking beer, just keep it on the tab, okay? I said, just get, I'll come into town. When I come into town, I'll come back. And I mean, I can't believe a man could drink that much beer. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, I'd go to a bar and it's a hundred dollars, and I go to another one that was one eighty, and I go, "Where the hell is he drinking all this?" Beer? How much were beers back then? Oh, a quarter. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, holy moly! <laughs> but I, that's what I did for him. Yeah, I, I did that. Uh, I was uh, so good. Bought my mom a house when I won the open in '68. Bought her a little small house, cost me $25,000. And then the, the biggest mistake I ever made, but I should have known, I didn't realize, I didn't have sense enough to realize this because, you know, we had all the old furniture, or the old stuff, the Victrola, the whole thing. So I told him, I said, listen, I want to buy her a new house. And I told this lady that was working with me, and I said, listen, do you think you can furnish it? She said, I can take care of that. I said, she said, yeah. I said, well, what are you going to do with the, with the old stuff in the house? I said, throw it away. Oh, she said, I'll take it. I said, okay. I mean, I, this, was worth, this was worth more. I threw away, I threw away more stuff. Classic furniture. Oh, I, I mean, this stuff was, was really, you know, an antiques. But I threw them all away. Hmm. Had to teach your mom how to use the phone. And she had the phone. Hmm. Yeah, but. Uh, well, if you're gonna if you're gonna uh, comment on your grandfather's beer drinking tabs, we got, we got to go through some of the stories because you could throw them back in the day as well. And, oh. it's, and I was amazed. To, I mean, you were not gonna. This is well documented, but you're not gonna find that in the current day. Guys don't roll off the golf course into the clubhouse at Muirfield Village now and throw back as many beers as you would throw back let, in the clubhouse. Let, after. Let, let me tell you something. When we played on tour, and all the old guys, well, they're all gone. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I mean, they're older than I am, and so they're all gone. But They'll tell you that we didn't have orange juice in the locker room and Cokes, you know, and water. Uh, we, we had a bar. You know, the locker room attendant knew what you liked. As soon as you come in and sit down, if you drank scotch and water, as soon as you sat down, you know, that locker room man, I mean, he, that was his living. He'd come down and with a scotch and soda and say, hey, Mr. Trevor. He said, I don't know what you shot. He said, but this will make you feel better. <laughs> sure did. Sure will. And then that's it. I mean, you know. And there's nothing worse than getting a buzz because you, you you chase it. Yeah. You know, you go, always chase a buzz. But, uh, oh, no, we, we, we always had a beer cooler. Uh, I mean, uh, it, it was un unbelievable. The one time in Chicago I thought I was going to get killed is J.C. I played in the morning, and I played terrible. And um, we were playing Butler. It's a men-only course. And I was in the locker room, and they had Pap Blue Ribbon. They had the little cans, a little, little six-ounce can. And I finished, and J.C. hadn't teed off yet. And I finished at noon. He teed off at 8, 12, 40. So I started drinking Pap Blue Ribbon. And when he finished, I was still sitting there drinking Pap Blue Ribbon. So he played bad, and he doesn't even drink. And J.C. will tell you. And Sue, his wife, was waiting on him at the hotel. And he sat down with me and started drinking, and we stayed till 11 o'clock. <laughs> and, 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 and we stayed till 11 o'clock, and I took him home. 
And she grabbed him by the throat when she got to the door, and I took off running. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget that because J.C. never touched it. He never touched a drink. Hmm. That was the only time I ever saw him drink. Well, what happened at the 1968 PGA Championship? Uh, I believe you were you were drinking on the Saturday night, and then something happened with some Gatorade. <laughs> this story is incredible. Well, I should have won that PGA. We're playing Pecan Valley in San Antonio, and I've got a condominium right next to the clubhouse because they got the, they had the, the the condos there. And uh, a guy by the name of Bucky Woy at the time, his his son is is a big agent for some of the ball players and stuff now, but his dad was. Fantastic guy. And he was a go-getter. He was the type of guy that you could kick him out the door, but he'd climb through a window. You know, he didn't take no for an answer. We're sitting there, and they're partying in the living room. Well, I got to get to bed because I'm, I'm, I'm there pretty close. You know, I'm a shot back or whatever it was. I might have been leading or tied. So anyway, so, no, I wasn't tied because I finished before the other guys. And so maybe a couple of shots back. I can get the answer for you right here. Third round, you were uh, two shots back. Yeah, I, I was tied for third. Yeah. Right, I was a couple of shots back, and they're all pointing everything. All of a sudden, a guy comes through the front door with a case of Gatorade, and nobody knew what the hell this was. Gatorade, what is it? He said, "Well, it's a thing that they did in Florida or Florida State College, and they did it for the players." And, to get hydrated and all this bologna and say, okay, I tasted it. I said, hell, this is pretty good stuff. So now we're drinking tequila. And they said, well, how is it if you mix it with tequila? And the guy says, pretty good. So they, we started mixing it with tequila. It was pretty good. It was pretty good. So he's got drained. So I said, man, I said, I said, I'm, I got to go to bed. So it was about midnight. I'm not going to play till 1 o'clock. So all of a sudden, I wake up about 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, and I'm thirsty, boy. I am thirsty as I can be. And I see this this kind of this pan, you know, that, that you'd boil eggs in or something, and, and it's in the refrigerator. And it's got Gatorade in it. And I said, oh, shit, I'll drink that. And I chug-a-lug that stuff, and it was full of tequila. <laughs> Well, I, I'm right back where I started. <laughs> I'm right back where I started. And it was 108 degrees the next day. God damn, I don't know how I ever finished. I, I, it was the worst. I, silly stuff. Silly stuff. What did you shoot that final round? God, it wasn't good. Let me see if it's... 75, maybe? Uh, let's see if it's in there. You didn't finish in the top 10. No. no so you fell back. I don't know what you shot. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'm still out there. <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. Ah, oh, damn. That is uh, that's a, one of yeah. my favorites. But that was that was it was that Gatorade. I mean, it was it was good, but that yeah. tequila, we we liked it. <laughs> it was, uh, what about uh, an exhibition in Gary, Indiana, with Tommy Bolt? <laughs> I shot like twenty nine on the front, and they had a pickup truck chasing us down the fairway, and it's full of beer. And I said. Um, how many beers do you think I can drink on the back nine? <laughs> and the guy says, I don't know. And they're starting to bet on how many beers. I think I drank 10 or something on the back nine. I got 13 in my Could have been. Could have been. <laughs> Could have been. I drank about 13 beers on the back. And I think Tommy beat me. 
I got to where I was rolling the ball, on the, but they were laughing. We were having a hell of a time. Yeah. I think you shot 43 on the back dive. Oh, yeah. Well. yeah. <laughs> I got gone. I was gone. <laughs> But they were all, they, but but all the gallery was drinking with me. They had they, they had the the whole. I wasn't the only one drinking those beers, you know. They had a they had a pickup truck full of ice, <laughs> stacked up with with beer all the way to the top. When did it When did it click for you that, you know, obviously you learn about making all this money playing golf on the tour, but learning about what kind of money you could make off the tour, endorsements, and you know the personality that you brought to golf, well, how marketable that was. What was that kind of journey like? Well. I I didn't understand it to tell you that truth. It's almost like this golf thing again. I I didn't know that there was that kind of money out there in doing this endorsement. See, Mr. Palmer knew it because of McCormick. Uh, I I didn't have that. My my whole interest was playing golf, winning money on the golf course. I had an old, uh, you know, the, the belief that I had the the third 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 mentality you you save a third you pay the taxes with a third and you spend a third and i thought this that's how the world turns and it does not you understand there's a lot if, if you win uh, it took me a while to realize that you're measured by majors but you have to win other tournaments to go along with those majors there were a lot of players that won majors that never won anything else so as far as the endorsements go, it was they were short, maybe a year, and then they didn't win anything else. Mm, they're gone. You understand? And this is how they do that. And it, it, it took me a while. It took me a while. I didn't really understand endorsements until I went and got managed by Chuck Rubin, which was Tom Watson's brother-in-law, which was Tom Watson's agent. And he was out of Kansas City. And that's when... I started making the big... I didn't start making the big dollars until the Champions Tour in 90. I made a lot of money after that. See, I quit playing in 81. People don't realize that. Back Uh, injury? Yeah, I've had four back injuries, you know. I got hit by lightning, and I quit. I I quit actually participating in 1981. And so I went to the NBC... With with uh, and do the color for NBC for eight years, and then when the champion when I turned fifty, I quit, and you know, and, and Miller came in, but uh, I, I didn't play. You know, I only played like 13, 14 years, and I came out of the tower and won the PGA in '84. Yeah. You know, but I was practicing hard, and and I got on a golf course that you, the drivers what won it there, nothing else. I mean, it was the driver because it, you you couldn't play out of that rough. Nobody could play out of that rough. But um, that was Show Creek. Yeah, but the big endorsements came. Uh, I won four of the first five on the senior tour, and they said, "Oh, oh, 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 this is uh, okay. He's gonna he's gonna rule for a little bit." I got to tell you a story about the senior tour. This is a hell of a story. When I turned fifty, I knew that Nicholas was turning fifty. Sixty days after me, and I said. I think I can do okay because they invited me to a tournament uh, that that celebrity tournament that they play out there in Nevada that they that they just just played it. Uh, the senior tour was having a pro am out there, and they invited me, and I wasn't quite fifty yet, and they invited me to come out because they wanted to test me to see because everybody was raving about the magazines had 
headlines about Trevino's going to turn for Trevino this, Trevino that. And and I'm, I can understand that the guys out on the senior tour or the champions tour were saying, what the hell are they talking about? Not going to be that easy for him. So they're having this senior pro-am out there, and I went out and played. And I either shot 64 or 66 and, and won it. And I remember when Orville Moody says, yeah, I didn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. He says, yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, he is. He is going to be there. So I ended up winning four of the first five when I turned 50. And then I, I, I got a thought. Nicholas didn't play in any of those. And I figured that I'd do okay if Nicholas didn't play. So I came up with an idea. And I called Barbara, Nicholas' wife, and I said to her, Barbara, you keep Jack, every week that you keep Jack at home, I'm going to send you a dozen roses. <laughs> I sent him. I played 38 tournaments that year. I sent Barbara 30 dozen roses. <laughs> I did. You can ask her. I sent her 30 dozen roses. I'd send her a dozen roses every week he didn't play. You won seven times on the senior tour in 1990. You won the U.S. Senior Open that year. Um, yeah, you. I, I remember the senior tour being, and uh, that's right around when I started getting into golf when I was a kid. And I remember the senior It was a big deal back then. Ridgewood. It, yeah. Yeah, I played Ridgewood. Great yeah. golf course. Yeah. Great golf course. Hmm. Yeah. What... Um, Breeze past this a, a big thing in your life that happened here when getting struck by lightning in 1975, which <laughs> well, that's a hell. That, you know, that's a great story uh, also because simply because we were playing uh, the Open Championship in Medina, and they had two tournaments in a row in Chicago, and we were playing Butler uh, at the Western Open, and it was the next week. So on a Friday, I'm on the tee, and it's about 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock in the morning. And, and that tee's got a, some bleachers around it. And it's, you know, in other words, it's full of gallery. And it starts lightning. That was before the years that we had a, a detector. You know, you knew lightning was in the area and they'd get you in. Siren would go off. Not then. Then you just, a little cloudy and say, well, what do you think? Ah, no, nah, that's too far away and, and all this baloney, you know, and you, and you keep playing. So I'm on, the, I'm on the tee, fixing the tee off. This young man comes out and says, Mr. Trevino, he says, they told me to come and get you. They've suspended play, and they told me to come and get you and uh, and uh, and uh, bring you in the clubhouse. I said, "What for?" And they said, "Well, they said uh, there's lightning in the thing, and and they want you out of the out out, out of the uh, off the team." And I'm trying to be a clown and, and stuff, and I looked around and I said, "Well, let me ask you this, son." I said, "What do you want me to do with all these people here? They're on uh, on bleachers that are steel." And do we take them in the clubhouse too, or, or, or no, they don't count? He said, I don't know, Mr. Mr. Trevino. He said, they just told me to come and get you. I said, well, good. I said, whoever told you that, you go back in there, and you tell them that not to worry. If it starts lightning, I'll take my one iron out, and I'll hold it up in the sky, because not even God can hit a one iron. And everybody laughed like hell, you know, and the whole deal. And I went in the clubhouse, right? The next week, on a Friday, we're playing Butler. 
starts getting a little cloudy. And all of a sudden, a lightning bolt struck. And they had suspended play after we hit our balls to the par three, which is 12 or 13. I can't remember the hole. And we're on the green. I'm playing with Mike Fetchick and Jerry Hurt. And all of a sudden, they suspended play, and we said, we're not going in. It's not raining. I mean, come on. They're going to bring us right back out here. I'm not going to walk all the way in. So we set our bags down, and we sat down at the back of the green, and there's a lake right there. And this lightning bolt hit the lake. And the rays shot out and picked me up off the ground, stretched me out just like a cartoon, just like a cartoon. I'm about a foot and a half off the ground, completely got me in a prone position, and I'm stretched out. And I can't get my breath. That's what lightning strikes do. I mean, they take you can't breathe, and then you you black out. And I can't. I, can't, I remember trying to breathe. I could, there's nothing, no air going in. Next thing I know, the ambulance was there. I had been out on the. I've been on the ground for almost an hour. And they put me on a board uh, because they picked me up, and I was all tangled up. They didn't know if, what was broken. And I went to the hospital intensive care. I spent two days there and uh, had some burn marks out of my left shoulder, entered my left shoe. And I'll never, the thing that I'll never forget is when my wife was on the phone and she says, how, how are you doing? I said, Claudia, you are not going to believe this. That lightning had me off the ground stretched out. And for the first time in my life, I was 6'2". <laughs> and she said, he's okay. He's okay. It took me a long time to get me get it back. Cause it, 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 it You're re- never the same with your back after that. Yeah, well, I've had four back operations. I have a steel plate in my throat, and then I have two steel rollers in my back for separation because, I, you know, it comes down. So I put two steel rollers in there, and um, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. good. Yeah. What was it like experiencing lightning after that had happened? I mean, I had to have some right now, scar tissue. Well, you know, that's what happened with all the things now. And uh, you have good days and bad days. But I have, I've had good days. Ever since I've had the two rollers put in, I went to Germany, Cologne, Germany, to have this procedure. Really? And they're just little rollers with wings on them, and they put them in, in, your, in between your facets, and it gives you your separation where so, the nerves can work on there. I'm saying when when you had lightning, you played golf after this. There's lightning after this. What was it like, you know, going back out there and knowing well, there's lightning you know, in the I, area? I, I, I respect it a hell of a lot more now. Yeah. If I have no place to go, if if I have no place to go and you're in the middle of a golf course, find the deepest bunker you can find, and get in the bunker. In other words, get below the ground, and then you'll be okay. Yeah, you'll be okay. Don't be afraid to get in a deep bunker and get up against the lip of it so, you, so you're below ground and you're okay. Yeah, but if I get out there and see it lightning, Carl Lewis can't outrun me to the clubhouse. <laughs> hey, <laughs> I'm telling you. Uh, now, I, I don't mess with it. I don't mess with it at all. Well, I've got like a story, 85 different stories I want to at least get uh, at least ask you about here. But So this is going to be a little random grab bag of a bunch of stuff that you've, you've told in the past or written about in the past. But I want you to tell me about drive, trying to drive to Panama 
from Mexico in the oh early days. Oh, my God. This guy, I'll never, <laughs> you know, I can't hardly, uh, his last name was Gray. I can't remember his first name. He was, he, he was a student at SMU. He graduated. He's a poker player, gambler. And he, he bet on me. He would go out and watch me play other guys, and he, he would bet on my side. He actually went to San Francisco with me in 66 when I was there. Uh, in other words, uh, when, I, when I was there for the Open. But he, he liked the way I played, but he was a gambler. He knew that I could beat people, so he, he'd take me in there. So he says, you know, they got a tournament in Panama. I said, we ought to go down there and see it, play it. And I said, okay. I said, how far is it? And he said, well, let, let me look at this map. And I said, okay. So look, we're looking at the map. And he says, you see here, because they say that from the end of your of your knuckle on your thumb to the end of your finger, to the end of your fingernail, it's an inch. Okay? So I get the map out, and I go, oh, hell, I said, it, it won't take that long. I said, because the... The, the 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 thing here is is every inch is three hundred miles or whatever, so we can get there in three days or whatever. So, we take off on a Friday. I'll never forget it. We had a brand new Oldsmobile, brand new car, Cutlass, and we take off, and we drive down to the Guatemala border. We don't have any papers to get into Guatemala. We didn't know you had to have a visa. We we didn't know, <laughs> you, and then a permit for the car. So now, okay, so we're looking at this guy and we're saying to him, okay, where do we go? Oh, senor, he says, you have to go 50 miles back. He says, to the city. What? Really? Yeah, the consulate is in the city. So now we drive 50 miles back, and we get the papers for the car, and we get the, uh, everything else. So now we take off again. And now I think we get to El Salvador, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Same thing. Got to go backwards again. Are you kidding me? We got there about 15 hours before the tournament started <laughs> on Thursday. Now, I'm going to tell you, we drove the river bottoms. There were no roads. We drove through the river. How I'm alive is just the most amazing thing in the world. We drove through the river bottoms. We actually, we said, we got it now. It was, it was just, it was, a, it was a, a, a wagon tracks. And we're going like this, but there's barbed wire fence on both sides for the animals, whatever the cattle run in but all of a sudden, we get out there in the middle of nowhere, and there is a gate. And guess who's standing at those gates? They've got the guns, and they've got the, I don't know if it was the cartel or the army or who it was. And they're saying, where are you going? And I told him he could speak Spanish, and I could speak broken Spanish, you know. So we got to talking about it. What the hell's going on? So all of a sudden, a guy says to me, he says, you smoke, yeah. You got any cigarettes? Yeah, here. I gave him a couple of packs of Marlboro. He says, I like those hats in the back. I said, which one do you want? That one. I said, okay. Adios, adios. Yeah, shit. We <laughs> <laughs> you thought there was a tornado, man. You never see so much dust in your life. We were going out of there. We drove all the way to Panama. It took forever. Like eight, six or seven days or oh, something yeah, oh, like yeah. that. Oh, yeah, seven days and nights we drove. I was worn out. I finished fifth in that tournament, <laughs> and we were worn out. We won $500, and he lost it in the poker game. <laughs> so you know what we did? We sold the car. We sold the car and got a— uh, Flew out. Yeah, we got an airline ticket and flew home. <laughs> Crazy. 
I mean, I mean, you can't, you you can't make this up. I mean, I mean, it's unbelievable. Oh man, what about? Uh, we haven't even talked really about El Paso, which has played a huge, huge role in your life. But uh, you ended up moving to El Paso. Remind me which year it was. Right in the sometime in the mid '60s, I believe. '66, I think. '66. Yeah. Uh, Raymond Floyd comes one day. Tell us the story yeah. about playing Raymond Floyd. Well, the the thing about it is, uh, I I was working, uh, you know, at, at the range now. And all of a sudden, uh, there's a there's a guy out of Fort Worth. They're playing for pretty big money out in El Paso. They're playing a lot of poker, cotton farmers, a lot of money. And uh, they had one guy out there. His name is Martin Letnich. He's passed away now. And he he actually is kind of the every club has a kind of a ringleader, you know. And there's all and Horizon Hills is just kind of a. Uh, it, not even a blue-collar golf course. I mean, it's down-down. I mean, it's just nothing. We don't mow. We don't do, we got greens, and you can play it if you want to. There's rocks and sand and, and no grass. So anyway, so they were playing out there. And there was an old guy that used to play the turn tour. His name is Fred Hawkins. Pretty good player. He's retired, couldn't play anymore, so he was out there in El Paso. And he was beating these guys up pretty good, you know, playing. So all of a sudden... There was a guy from Fort Worth out there playing. And Martin Ledges goes to him and says, listen, he says, do you know do you know anybody in Dallas that can play golf? No one knows. He said, yeah. He said, I know this Mexican boy that plays that works at the driving range. He said, he's pretty good. And, and, and he says, uh, and he says, uh, yeah, he could, he could do a good job for you. And he says, okay, so I'll, I'll call him. So he calls me up. Now, Martin Letnich's family was from Yugoslavia, but they settled there after the war. They own the whole damn valley now. And he's a very wealthy man. But rolls his own cigarettes. I mean, very country, this guy. Big man. And speaks Spanish fluently. And in fact, his brother doesn't even speak English. His brother speaks Spanish. He was a trader, a cattle trader. So he has to speak, speak it well. So Martin <clears throat> gets on the phone and he says, Hey, Chico, Martin Lednitz here. Yeah, so he speaks, starts speaking Spanish to me. And I said, Sir, I said, you speak English? Yeah. I said, you know, I, I speak Spanish. I, I'm, I'm ashamed of it, but I don't speak Spanish that well. I understand some of it. He says, okay. He said, uh, I need to hire you. I said, what do you need? He said, I want you to come to El Paso and play for me. I said, uh, who do you want me to play? He said, I want you to play this guy, Fred Hawkins. I said, oh, he's, I don't know who he is. So he says, okay. So I go out there. I get off of the airplane. I've got a gray kangaroo. He, he books you a flight, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So he, he, gives, he said, I'm going to give you $100 a day to play for me. Well, I was making $100 a week. So I said, okay. So I jump on the plane. I got this gray kangaroo bag it says mcgregor on it and lee trevino and as soon as i get out as soon as i get off gets my bag and i go out and here he comes in a blue pickup it is so beat up this pickup it has run into everything this thing is, is really bad shape he's got hay in the back and wire i mean it's really nasty really nasty so he gets out of the he says is that your bag i said yeah he said no chico no, Chico. He says, we're not using that bag. I said, why not? He says, uh-uh. I got a bag for you. So he brings this 
green stick bag that we used to use. They had the stick in it you carried. You're too young to under, remember sticks. that. Yeah, it yeah. had a stick in it. And it's a raggedy thing. And he takes all my clubs out and he puts them in there. And he puts the gray bag in, in a blanket in the back. He didn't want to see me. So we go out to Horizon Hills. There was a guy that owned the Stylist Shoe Company was out there. Redmond was his name. And he's on the putting green. And he says to and 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 he says to the to the guy that I'm playing, he says, "Listen," he said, uh, "Who are you playing?" He said, "I'm playing that little guy over there." Redmond says, uh, he said, "I don't know." He said, "What's his name?" He said, "His name is Lee Trevino." And he says, Redmond says, uh, "You better be careful." He said, "I think I've heard about this guy." And the other guy says, "Listen." He says, if I haven't heard from him, if I haven't heard about him, he can't play. So I went out there and dusted him pretty good. Okay? And we played the next day. We had a thing to play three days. And I went out the next day and played him and ran over him again. So he left. He didn't show up for the third one. So then the, the city champion wanted to try me, and I went back out, and Fisher, and I beat him pretty bad. So Martin... Martin talked me into staying there. And I went ahead and I got a job at the club. I opened the club at 5 in the morning, and I would take off at 11 to play in the game, you know, in the game. I played 5 to 11, 5 11. I practiced, played every day. I played every day, money games. So one day I saw a couple of bookmakers that I knew from Dallas. And I was wondering what they were doing in the pro shop. All of a sudden they're in the pro shop. I don't know how they found the place, but they found out that guys were playing for some money and betting on me. So I knew those guys from Tennyson Park anyway, so they came up and one of them says to me, he says, I hear that you guys are playing for a lot of money out here. I said, I'm not. I don't have any money. You know, I, I, five bucks is my limit. So he says, do you think if we brought a player out here, they would bet on you? I said, I don't know. I said, you'd have to talk to Martin. He said, who's that? I said, he's standing right over there. I said, he's the guy with all the money. So he goes over there and he says to uh, Martin Lettnich, he says, uh, hey, he says, uh, if we bring a man out here, he says, to play your little man, he says, uh, would y'all bet on your little man? And Martin says, uh, sure. He said, uh, we want to bring out, he says, who do you want to bring out? He says, we want to bring out Raymond Floyd. He said, bring him on, Chico. Now, Martin just had no idea who Raymond Floyd was. <laughs> he was in the same boat I'm in. I mean, if he had said Arnold Palmer, he wouldn't have known who it was. I mean, come on. This guy's a farmer, and he's, he's right yeah. there. And, and uh, he says, yeah. He says, so one day I, I opened the shop, brought the carts out. Five o'clock in the morning, I got the shop open. I'm, I'm doing something, vacuuming or something in the locker room. That's what I did. And I hear this car drive up in the driveway in, the, in our parking lot. And we have like caliche, gravel. You can hear it. In other words, you, it, when a car drives in, you can hear it. And it's like Seminole. Seminole used to have uh, all gravel. You, you can hear it when you park. So I went out and I looked to see who was driving. And there was a Cadillac. There ain't no Cadillacs ever come in our driveway. There ain't no Cadillacs. They're all pickups or motor scooters or something. But there's no... No Cadillacs. 
And all of a sudden, I see this guy get out of the passenger side. Tall, got those, had a pair of gorgeous blue pants on. He dressed, he dressed, oh, yeah. yeah, that guy could he had, dress. He, he dressed great. <laughs> and he had this beautiful pair of slacks on and his shirt, alligator shoes. <laughs> and I went out there and he had a Wilson bag with a cover all on it. I mean, it, weighed, it must have weighed 200 pounds. <laughs> he had junk in that thing. So I picked it up and I put it on the cart comes in the locker room he sits down not too far away from where I'm at I go over by the counter where the shoe counter is and I unzip the bag and balls fall out shoes fall out I'm trying to place them all on the on the floor get the cover off the bag big old all he got all those clubs in there he's sitting in the chair and he says um can I get a coke yeah diet coke so I go in the bar get the diet coke the guy that's with him says, I'm going to go get a golf cart. We want to look at the golf course. He said, okay, okay, okay. So he says, Raymond says, is there anybody here can play gin? I said, not this early, Mr. Floyd. I said, uh, not this early. And he said, uh, let me ask you a question. What do you do around here? I said, I do a little bit of everything. I said, I open a shop at 5, bring the carts out. I do the vacuuming. Just whatever needs to be done, Mr. Floyd, that's what I do. He said, well, let me ask you another question. He says, who am I playing today? And I said, you're playing me, Mr. Floyd. <laughs> he went like this, and he said, I'm playing you? Yes, sir. Uh, okay. So the guy comes back. He says, come on, I got a cart. Raymond says, for what? He said, want to look at the course. He said, I'm not going out there. He said, I'm playing the locker room attendant. He said, I'm, not, I'm going out there. I'm playing a locker room attendant. And he said, no, nah, I'm not going out there. So he didn't go. So at 1 o'clock, we teed off. I don't remember the scores real well, but I think I shot 64 maybe, 65, 64, 65, I think. And then he shot a couple of shots back. I beat him. And when we finished up, we finished up about 530. And he's sitting there, and he says, I ain't had enough of this. He said, let's play another nine. And I said, Mr. Floyd, I said, I'd love to. I said, but I can't play another nine. I said, I got to put the carts up. <laughs> he said, that's about right. He said, I'm playing the cart man, too. He <laughs> said, but I played him the next day, and the scores were about to like. Beat him again, and then uh, I won again. And then um, there's no beating Raymond. You, you, you might win, but he's tough. Short term, yeah. Woo, yeah. he's tough man. And so I ended up uh, losing the next day. We, we had both had eagle putts on 18, and we were tied. And uh, he made his, and I missed mine. Yeah. To beat, but beat him two to one. I beat your, him two to in one. Your eight, in your he got all his money back. He was the only one that, uh, that bet on himself that third day and, uh, and hmm. um, you know, put the money up. Uh-huh. Tell me about uh, playing the Open Championship with Bruce Devlin at Royal Lytham. Uh, what, <laughs> <laughs> almost did a spit take with the water. <laughs> I told, you know, we're crazy. You know, Bruce is crazier than I am, to tell you the truth. But he couldn't hit a driver. If he was, I'm, I'm going to tell you something. If he was in a stadium... He, he couldn't hit a bleacher. I mean, it, the driver was really bad. I mean, he hit it everywhere. So we're on the driving range, and he's we're playing together. And I think we're first off. We're not playing well. What year was this, do you remember? I do not remember. Okay. But we, 
we we were on the driving range, and he is hitting it everywhere. And I've got this old McGregor driver with a nickel insert. You know, it's a little round nickel thing like this. And 1969, so, by the way. Was it? Yeah. So he starts hitting. So I said, really? You can't hit it? He said, I can't hit a damn thing with this driver. I said, well, something wrong with it. I said, hit mine. So he sat there, and he pounded my driver. Boom! Boom! One right after the other. And he looked at me, and he says, my God. He said, what in the world? I said, I have no clue. I said, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll use the same driver. He said, how the hell are we going to do that? I said, it's easy. I said, we have an observer. I said, but as soon as you hit the driver, I hit the driver, what does he do? He looks at the ball. I mean, I mean, he's not going to be looking at you. He's going to be looking to see where the ball's going. I said, so if you're up first, you take my driver from the caddy. And as soon as you hit, I'm going to walk right by you, <laughs> and you make sure that you make sure that my driver is 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 in whichever side that I'm walking by you on, and I'm going to hand you the other one. We used the 14 holes. <laughs> <laughs> and I told him if they ever wanted to send the money back, we only won like twelve dollars, so <laughs> <laughs> we didn't win anything, but we had a lot of fun. <laughs> That's what this life's about, you know. Everything's about getting up in the morning and laughing. You can tell by looking at a person. You can look at the wrinkles around their mouth, and you can tell whether they're. I can tell how to talk to them. If I see everything going like this, I. I go like this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what about a, a uh, this was, a, I guess, was this controversial during your time? I believe you wore a Band-Aid over it to cover it, but a tattoo uh, that you got at a certain had, point in your life. Yeah, I had a tattoo. Uh, you know, I had a, a, a girlfriend and I had a puppy, you know, this pup, puppy love stuff. And then I went in the Marine Corps and, oh, I'll wait and I'll do this. Well, I, w- I wasn't gone a month and I got a dear John, as you well know. You're always going to get that. So I got a Dear John letter and everything, and, and you know, and so that's the way it was uh, back then. So what I did is uh, I got a friend, you know, in the Marine Corps, and I said, oh, where do you get a tattoo? And the guy says, I can do it for you. I said, what do you mean you can do it for me? And he did. He took a needle, and he he put some twine around the, the, the head of the needle, and he dip it in the ink and then put it in your skin, and he could put the name Ann, A-N-N, on here on my forearm. And that's what he did. The problem is I had to have it burned 75 times because he went so deep, <laughs> you know, when I took it off. But, uh, yeah, I, I put the... Uh, and that was... And you guys broke up shortly after that when you got back, and you, were, you had that tattoo. Oh, I never saw her again. Never saw her again. Nah, I saw her. Well, I saw her. You know what a Dear John letter is? That's yeah. breaking up with some... Yeah. I saw her about 35 years later. Yeah, I did. <laughs> Do you still have the tattoo? Were you able to get it removed? No, or you no, still I, I have it. It's gone. But I, I saw it about thirty-five years later. Maybe, maybe it was that. I, I don't remember. But it was, it was uh, way back. You know, I was doing something. I was working. You know, I was doing a store appearance. That's what it was. I, I remember for Dr. Pepper, somebody. And this gal kept talking to me and talking to me, and she says, uh, "You don't remember me." And I said, no, "I'm sorry," and says, uh, "I'm Ann." I said, you got to be joking. Where in the world have you been? She got married and had two or three kids and stuff. That was about it. I just, I just saw her there for a little while. Yeah. 
Um, this this one just cracked me up. What about uh, you're flying with Gary Player sometime and uh, you make a stop in the Canary Islands? And do you remember what Gary Player did? Yeah, the man nuts. <laughs> <laughs> you know all that thing that Gary tells you about not eating bread, not eating bread, and not eating sweets. I watched him pack his suitcase one time with twenty four Snicker bars. You know, he had in a bag twenty. Or he, I guess he was taking them to his kids. I don't know. But he's a health nut. But, yeah, we stopped in the Canary Islands, and all of a sudden I see Gary coming out of the bathroom with running gear on. And he's got his sweatsuit on. I said, where in the hell are you going? He said, oh, man. He said, this is the best place to run. <laughs> he, says, he says, you got the whole runway. <laughs> and he ran out there until the plane was ready to take off. <laughs> I'm, the man is not right. I'm telling you. I went to stay with him. I'll never forget this in my life. I went there, and, and we did some exhibitions together. We raised money for his schools, and I went to South Africa. And we're out there in one of his farms, and he's got these racehorses, and he's parade. He said, I'm going to show you something. He says, oh, I said, this is a champion. Champion. I said, what's a champion? He said, I'll show you a champion. I got. He brings his horse out, parades in front of us. Beautiful horse, a racehorse. He's got the right blood. He said, he's a champion. I said, really? Has he run yet? No, not run yet. He says, but he's a, I'll, you want, I'm going to sell you half of him. And uh, I ended up giving him $6,000 for half of this damn horse. I didn't know what went with it. You know, buying a horse is nothing. That's like buying a car and never putting gas in it. You understand? It's not going to cost you anymore. But a horse, he's got to have a groomer, exercise boy, a jockey. He's got to have somebody put his shoes on every day. I mean, it, it's unbelievable. Somebody to give him a bath. And so we get back home, and my wife keeps getting these bills, 1400 1400 1200 1500 So my wife says to me, she says, when is this damn horse going to run? And I said, well, I don't think he's ready yet. She says, this is crazy. So all of a sudden, I get a message from Gary and said that the horse, something happened to his intestine, and he died. The horse died. And my wife looked up, and she says, there is a God. She <laughs> says, there is a God. So I told Gary. She says, no, he says, my brother. He says, my brother. He says, I am going to make this good. He says, the next champion I get, he says, I'm going to give you half for nothing. I said, no, you can keep my half. I said, I don't need more He's still chasing those horses, I'll tell you. But what a farm he has. What a job Gary Player has done in South Africa. See, people really don't know anything about, you know, they talk about apartheid and they talk about, yes, they did have that. He was always against it. Since the day I met him, he was against it. He fought against it. He thought Mandela was the best thing that happened to South Africa in a long time. But the thing that he did is he knows that the future of any country is education. you got to have the education, the know-how. And all these kids that were not being educated in South Africa, he started building schools, and he started giving them a place to go and learn. If not to get the highest of learning, at least able, uh, in, in other words, to take care of themselves. And, and he still does it. We do, we, we, 
we do outings. We, we just had they just had one in New York, uh, up in New York, uh, a big one, um, and so um, uh, he raises a lot of money every year, all year. In other words, to do those schools there in South Africa, but he is the sweetheart. I mean, he's in shape too. See, he he see the thing that he did, and you 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 have to look look at it like David and Goliath. Okay, one guy's really big, and one guy's really small. You got to figure out how to bring that big guy down. You understand? The only way you can bring that big guy down is to outwork him. You got to outwork him. You got to be in better shape. And you don't have to hit as hard as him, but you got to hit him more times. And every time he hits you and knocks you down, you jump up like a like a rabbit, and that guy'll start getting scared. Said, damn, I hit him with what I oh, that's all I had. That's all I had. I better get a bat. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 that's the thing with him. His 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 brother went to war. And when his brother went to war, he gave him a, bar, a set of barbells. He says, You're not gonna be a big guy. He says, You need to get in shape. Because everybody's gonna be bigger than you are. And it taught him. I mean, he 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 knew what he wanted. He knew exactly what he wanted. Yeah, that that Canary Island story just cracked me up. Oh yeah, uh, he's out there running with the damn airplanes, you know. I said, <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, you got to have some good Arnold Palmer stories. Do you have a? Uh, I I hate asking the open ended question of what your go to Ar- Arnold Palmer is story is, but you got to have some. The best the best story I got with Arnie, and it was the Ryder Cup in '75. He was the captain. Never spent much time with Arnold. Uh, you know, I, I uh, uh, he was, he's a busy guy, you know. Played golf with him, but never uh, did, did much. But I have two stories with him. One, his last tournament that he played in, I played with him. But we're at the Ryder Cup, and we won the, there was 32 points then, and we won the Ryder Cup with a round to go. In other words, we didn't have to place the second round if we didn't want to, but that was when they played two rounds on Sunday because it was 32 points. So we won. We won the cup. We won 32 and a half points in, in, in the four rounds. We didn't have to play the last one. We we did play it, yep. but we didn't have to. You had it clinched up for the last session. So I'm tired. I've played every match. They always put me out first. So I'm in the locker room, and Arnie says, uh, okay, baby. He said, you're up. I said, Arnie. I've played every round. I've played five rounds. I'm exhausted. I said, send somebody in that had been playing. It doesn't make any difference. Oh, no. He said, the governor's waiting on you on the first tee. I said, really? I said, yeah. And I said, uh, okay. I said, how much time have I got? He said, you got 40 minutes. I said, good. Tell the locker room to bring me a six-pack of Rolling Rock. And he says, what? I said, tell the locker guy. Give me a six-pack of lower lock. And I got on a bench like this. I had the six-pack. And I inhaled four beers in 15 minutes. And and I went out. I got a little buzz on. And I went out the locker room. <laughs> and and the governor's over there. And, and he sticks his hand out. And I missed it. <laughs> <laughs> I went right by him, see. <laughs> so anyway, he thought I was joking. And I'm glad. Because <laughs> I did. I did. I missed it completely. But anyway, so we turn at nine, and I'm playing a guy named uh, Norman Wood. He's a golf pro now in Scotland, and uh, I, I didn't know who Norman Wood was, and 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 so, 
He's got me two down at the turn, and Arnold is in the pavilion, and the, the 10th tee is right over like this wall here. And he says, how you doing? I said, I'm two down. He said, hold it right there. He goes over and <laughs> he gets me two beers and hands them over the, he hands them, he hands them over the, uh, the thing. Did you come back? No. No. I was four and, four and three, four and three. <laughs> but I had the pleasure, I still have the golf ball, of playing the last round of golf with Mr. Palmer. Uh, it was, um, it, it, it was is down at Augusta Pines in Houston. And um, we were playing a, a, a senior tournament there. And I birdied one, and I birdied two. And I was going down the third hole, and he comes over to me and he says, are you trying to embarrass me? <laughs> now, he scared me to tell you the truth. <laughs> and I said, what are you talking about? And he starts laughing. <laughs> I said, you know, I pulled both of those putts, and they went in. Hell, I misread them. I said, you know, you do that sometimes. So we get to the par three, and this par three is like a boomerang. It's like a banana, and it's over water. And the pin was on the right corner, and I hit five iron in there, about 25 feet left of the hole. And he gets up, and he's got a hybrid, and he hits it. And when he hits it, man, he starts – he starts rocking that head, you know, and stuff. And all of a sudden, nobody says anything. And so he turns to me and he says, how close is that? I said, how close is what? He said, that ball. I said, Arnie, I said, the pin's on the right side. He said, what? I said, the pin's on the right corner of the green. He said, well, what the hell is that I'm looking at there? I said, that's a pine tree. He, it was a tree that he shot at. And the ball hit the green and came back in the water. And I said, I don't know how to tell you this. I said, but that ball came back and went in the water. And he looked at me and he said, that's it. This is what he said. He said, that's it. He said, uh, that's it. I'm not, I'm not playing anymore. I said, what do you mean you're not playing anymore? You want to take my cart and go in or what? No, 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 no. He says, I don't ever leave a golf course. He said, I'm going to finish playing. He said, but I don't want any score on the board. So I told the lady not to put anything on the board. But he says, I'm, I'm not playing anymore. He said, that's it. That's, that'll be my last time to play. I mean, he quit on at Augusta Pines on the, about the, that part three, four, or five. I don't remember which one it was. So now I'm playing with John Mahaffey and I, John Mahaffey and I and Arnold. So naturally, my, my mind's were going. I said, you know, last round, Arnold Palmer, what can I get? I got to get something he can autograph for me. I said, a ball. I want the last ball he hits on 18. So now Arnie wants to put on a show. Arnie's trying to go over lakes. <laughs> he's going over trees. He's hitting shots he's never hit in his life. But the ball problem is, is the ball's not going anywhere, and he's going in the water. He keeps hitting balls in the water. And I'm over with wedges fit, trying to fish him out because I'm afraid. <laughs> well, I'm afraid he's going to run out of balls. Yeah. And now I don't have a ball with an umbrella on it. You understand? He's, he's going to be using mine or somebody else's or somebody brings him some. So I said, he's going to run out of balls. And I'm fishing the balls out of the water and getting them back to him and stuff. And he's rifling everything. <laughs> he's going everywhere, right? We had a hell of a time, hell of a time. So he comes to 18. He's got an eight-foot par putt. And 
the caddy grabs the flag, and I move the caddy out of the way. I said, no, no, I got this one. <laughs> you, you, you're not holding this flag. I'm holding this one. And so uh, I got the caddy out of the way, and I'm holding the flag, and I'm standing close to the hole, and he makes it. And I reached down, and I grabbed the ball out of the hole, and I asked him, I said, can I have this ball? He said, sure. I said, okay. And Mahaffey says, what can I get? I said, ask him for the glove. And and he didn't want to give it up because, you know, his warehouse, his, his museum's full of them damn gloves. And <laughs> it smells gloves in there. But so anyway, uh, Mahaffey got the glove. I got the ball. The saddest day of my life was when I sat on the couch with him. And the media, it was outside. Just outside the locker room, they had a couch there with the media, small media. And he sits there. And they asked him a question. And he couldn't speak. And I get emotionally even talking about it. And he couldn't speak. And I'm sitting next to him. And I look over at him, and I see a tear coming out of his eye. And he's just sitting there. And he looked at me. And I'm trying to think of what to say to break this. And I said, it went fast, didn't it? Life goes really fast. And he looked at me and he says, you know, you're right. And then he started talking to the media. Yeah. But what happens, with, in my opinion, with that is a lot of thoughts going through. And it can't say anything. But uh, it, it, it was, uh, I went to his memorial. It was a fantastic, you know. Uh, I mean, it was, I, I, I guarantee you there's more people that watch that than anything, hardly. I mean, uh, Arnold Palmer. He, he was a, I don't know how you put it, to tell you the truth. I, I don't, he was it. He was an it. I feel like he understood his role it's so well as the ambassador of golf. And his was, father. Everyone's got a story about how. Can you yeah. imagine what that dad did to him? Yeah. And you know what? And his dad was tough with him. It wasn't that he pampered him. You know, he put his hands on that driver, which was the greatest grip in the world. And then he was trying to hit it farther and put the right hand underneath. I said, that's not going to make you. That's not going to give you any distance. I said, you're going to break your left ankle. I said, you're going to hit a one in the heel. <laughs> I said, you're going to have that hand here, and it's going to turn over, and that ball's going to hit you in the ankle. What blew my mind just speaks to his popularity, though, but 1968 PGA Championship that you won, you were leading going into the final round, but you played in the second-to-last group because he played in the last group. He's almost in last place, but... USGA wanted him out on TV. He played behind the last group, uh, the leading group at the, yeah. in the final round on Sunday. They came to us, and was, I was playing with Bert Yancey. And we were playing the last round at Oak Hill, and they came and they said television was just starting to get cranked up as far as tour was concerned. So they came out, and they said to us, they says, do you really mind if, if a, another – another twosome plays a couple of holes behind you. And we said, no, not at all. What, what's, what's the problem? And they said, well, you know, the media and television and, and all our fans, they, they want to see Arnold Palmer. And we're going to put him in behind you and Bert with a, with a, an amateur, which was a real hot amateur at the time. He never made it as a professional. Tried to, but he never did. 
and his name was Jack Lewis. And uh, good college player, great college player, great amateur. But he just it, he didn't pan out as far as the tour is concerned. And they played behind us. And that was one of the first times I ever met him. I was in the uh, scores tent, and uh, he came over and shook my hand. And I looked up at him, and I said, uh, man, this is better than winning the tournament. <laughs> and then I went to the media, which was in a parking lot right behind the green. And it was, a, believe it or not, it was a funeral tent. And they had two cameras there because that was when they had AP and UPI back then. And I spent about 10 minutes, five minutes with him. And then we jumped in the car and went to the El Sombrero and had a margarita. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. That was it for me. <laughs> wow, what a highlight. Yeah. Um, I, can't, I can't believe it has, this hasn't come up yet, but I know you've talked about this a lot in the past, but you've had an a up-and-down relationship with Augusta National and the Masters throughout the course of your life. You've mentioned, you know, you've boycotted it at times. You've mentioned the regret of all that that in going through that. I wanted you just to tell the story of who talked you back into or kind of what, why you ended up not why you uh, felt uncomfortable at the Masters or at Augusta and how you ended up coming back around on that. My problem with Augusta was this. When we got there on a Monday morning, there were four people in my car, and we came to the guard gate to go in. And they said to me, you can go in, Mr. Trevino, but the other three people can't. They're going to have to go down through the other gate and buy a gallery ticket. I said, no, they're not getting out here, and they're not buying a gallery ticket because I'm going to get them a gallery ticket when I register. And they said, no, you can't do that. And that's what set it off. That's what started the ball rolling right there. I had my caddy with me that took care of me. He drove my car, took care of my stuff, Neil Harvey. They wanted to kick him out. So I ended up getting into it with Cliff Roberts. The golf course never had anything to do with me not going there. I love that place. It's gorgeous. I was even in business there in Hepspah, right down the street. We had a dairy. I, I was in business there with a, with a farmer. This whole thing with Augusta started with Cliff Roberts and the tickets. And the way he can't defend himself simply because he's passed away. I don't talk too much about him. But he wasn't very pleasant to talk to when I talked to him about trying to get my tickets and the whole thing. And I didn't agree with it. And I said, I'm not going through this. So then when the media was going, I was trying to rub the, I, I didn't want to say anything about Mr. Roberts. You understand? So when they said to me, you know what, I said, well, I, I can't play the course. There's too many dog legs to the left. And that's the way I left it. What are you talking about? I can play in a corn patch. It doesn't make any difference. <laughs> I, I learned to play golf in a pasture, digging a hole with a butcher knife, and I can't play Augusta? Are you crazy? No, I, that wasn't it. I led it twice, in, in other words, uh, you know, after 36 holes. So, uh, no, my whole thing was with, with the dictator. Yeah, he was a dictator. And, and, and if people were really honest and you asked anybody else out there about him and they told you the truth, they'd tell you the truth, the same thing I just told you. He was a, he was a tough cookie. He was a tough cookie, and it was his way or the highway. I took the highway. 
You understand? I didn't want to argue with him because I'm short fused. I got a short fuse. <laughs> yeah, there's some of those stories in your book, which I would highly recommend to people. And I think you do need an update to your to your uh, autobiography if it's been 40 years. I think. But, yeah. Um, I, there's a line in there. I don't even know how to ask a question around around this, but this may be just cackle. I was sitting on my back porch. I don't know if, if I could feed you the, the, the term manual labor. Do you, do you have a go-to line about that one? Oh, you mean the manual labor? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I started all that stupid <laughs> stuff when I was on tour, you know, after I made money and became somebody. They, they said, man, what are you, where did you come? Man, I said, you know, I didn't know manual. I thought manual labor was a Mexican. <laughs> that <laughs> got me. Uh, I know uh, you've told that one before, but that uh, got me so good reading I it. I used to tell all those stories, and then, then my friends would come and say, hey, man, what are you doing? And I did a joke, you know. I, I don't. I'm never serious about anything. When you won the uh, 1971 Open Championship, you won thirteen thousand dollars. How much did you come home with? The, oh, the which one? The the Bur Burkdale in '71. You won thirteen thousand dollars, right? Yeah, yeah. How much did you come home with? None. No, none. <laughs> Why is that, bro? That was my whole deal. I played in a pro am at Bighorn, and, and <laughs> uh, three years ago, I won the Bighorn Shootout over there. And I got $6,000, and I waved the check at them, and they said, what is it? I said, man, I said, this this makes me feel like playing the Open at Burkdale. And they said, why is that? I said, because I lost money at both tournaments. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, that's uh, – yeah, we had 12 uh, – we had a bunch of people with us. When we went to Muirfield, we lost more. I had 12 people, rented a castle. There's yes, a story sir, with was, the nuns that, that you had a – you promised some nuns money if you won the tournament? That was at Burkdale. That was yeah. – Jimmy Dean and I. Yeah. Jimmy Dean and I, they were dressed in their habit, the whole thing, you know, and because I promised them if I won the tournament, I'd give them $5,000. So I won the tournament, and there they are standing there. I mean, the nuns. And I said, okay, where are we going? I said, we're going back to the Prince of Wales. So they come back to the Prince of Wales. So we ended up going over to the Kingsway Casino to, to the bar. We had two nuns in the bar, Jimmy Dean and I. I mean, come on, there's not too many people can do this. And they came in with us, and, and we got them. But you know why they went in there? Listen, they, 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 they didn't go in there to get the fact. I told them I was going to auction off the wedge. And I auctioned off the wedge and got 13000 for the wedge. So I gave it to the, to the nuns for the children's, uh, yeah, they had a school there. Yeah. I gave away my wedge. Helen Hicks. That's her 1937. name. 1937. Oh, that's the wedge's name. Yeah, 1937. It's a lady's wedge. That's that old wedge you're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Had dimples in it. Yeah. Well, I uh, I, re I re do regret to end this because I think I could get you talking golf for six or seven more hours, but I'm conscious of your time as well. And we greatly, greatly appreciate Thank you. Uh, you spending some time with us, telling some stories, and I... Uh, I've heard a lot of them in a lot of places, but this was this was probably number one on my on my to do list before I die was to to get you in, in the in the podcast studio for for an interview. And this has been an absolute treat and an honor. So thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you thank for the you time for and uh, and the effort. It's greatly appreciated. Good. You going to the uh, PGA show? Uh, we'll not be at the PGA show this yeah. year. We're going to be out of town uh, for that one. But um, but yeah, we I, I'm in Dallas a fair amount. Um, we I, you don't play a lot of golf these days. I as I, I don't I, no I don't I don't play much. Uh, I may play a couple of rounds next week. The last round I played, I shot 82, and uh, I was kind of sad about it. And, and and Daniel, my boy, said to me, she says, "What are you talking about?" He said, "You broke your age." <laughs> I said, "That's cold, boy. That's awfully cold." He said, "You broke your age." I said, "That's cold. That's cold blooded," you know. But um, 
I don't play. Uh, I play. Uh, I played three holes. I played three holes a month ago. At uh, we practiced David Graham and I, <laughs> and we went to number ten at Preston Trails, and I birdied ten, birdied eleven, and then we jumped over to sixteen, and I hit driver wedge, and I chili dipped it in the creek. And I said to him, I said, what time is it? He said, 11.30. I said, let's go have a bowl of soup. <laughs> I played two and a half holes. Now, I don't play much anymore. Um, I can still hit it. You practice a lot, though, yeah. still. Yeah. I, got, I still got it. <laughs> That's great. Still got it. Yeah. Well, I love your passion for it. Yeah. So thank I, you again still, for having us down here. This was God bless you. Thank this you very so much. so much fun. Cheers. Thanks. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most!